if companies are not made accountable for the full cost of the carbon that they emit, mm -hmm. then they will carry on generating carbon at a level which is optimal for their own shareholders, but not optimal for society. Mm -hmm. right? So reporting, accounting on, reporting on carbon emissions has the effect of raising awareness of this as an issue. Professor Richard Barker is not only one of the most popular professors on the MBA programme, he's also a member of the International Accounting Standards Board and a leader of the natural capital accounting movement. Following my conversation with Carter in part one of this two-part episode on the future of the planet, I spoke to Richard to learn whether the solution to the carbon bubble might come from an unlikely source, the financial accounts. We're going to kick off by starting off with this concept of the carbon bubble, which, as I've explained, we had previous conversation um, with a class, classmate, uh, Cast Powers, who's done a lot of work on this area. And he was explaining to us that there is this idea that it would be impossible for all of the natural resources which are currently on oil and gas companies' books to be extracted and burned and still remain below two-degree warming. And it's something like only 20% of those that are currently um, on their accounts could, in fact, be extracted. And so there's this idea that perhaps um, they are sort of shockingly overvalued by, by that account. And I, the reason we want to talk to you is obviously you've really become such an expert in natural capital accounting and obviously accounting in general. And so to understand from your perspective, does this carbon bubble exist? Is it real? And what do companies do to kind of respond to it? <laughs> There's a lot of questions in there, but we can take them okay. one by one. <laughs> okay, so I think it is real. I think it's very disturbing. And there's lots of elements to it. I mean, I think the past tends to be taken as a guide to the future. So what's worked well in the past tends to be assumed to be a good guide to what will work in the future. And oil and gas companies have been very, very successful in the past at extracting and selling or for burning fossil fuel and that's what they do that's what they're good at and that's what they're set up to do that's the culture of the firm and they are currently making a lot of money out of doing it it is a hugely profitable industry with no obvious current substitute and so the incentive to carry on doing what we're doing and the absence of an alternative is deeply troubling at a time when business as usual is not sustainable. So from your perspective, what if you were in their position, what would you be trying to do now? Well, I think in principle, what they ought to be doing is recognising themselves to be in the energy business, mm -hmm. because we will always need energy, but to understand that the energy business will need to change dramatically. So if we, if we are to meet these carbon targets, mm. as you described, we can't carry on burning fossil fuel and we can't carry on looking for more to find because we've already found more than we can safely burn. But that's what they're doing. I mean, that's sort of, that's just sort of inherent in the, in, in the nature of the business. And I guess it's a very difficult thing to do to shift from something you do very well and very profitably to something where 
you're not sure you have a technology, you're not sure you're going to be the firm that will dominate the market and so on and so forth. And so it's it's a transition you'd rather not have to make if you can avoid right. doing so. And the longer you can avoid doing so, the more you will. And so that's kind of what we're seeing, I think, is sort of protracted denial. And if I'm if I'm an analyst and I'm sitting looking at their, uh, you know, an old company, yeah. at what point do I go, you know, how many years towards 2050 or 2030 do I wait before I say, actually, this is all shockingly overvalued and none of this is real? Do you see what I mean? Like yeah, I do, I do see it. So... <laughs> So I think it's really important to understand the nature of the incentives of participants in financial markets. So if you're an analyst Mm. or you're a fund manager, what matters is that you have an understanding of the price as it is now and how it will change in the foreseeable future. Because that's the time horizon over which you will be judged based upon relative performance. Mm -hmm. So if everyone in the market is making the same dumb decision, that's okay. Mm. And if you're the sort of that the brave person who says, you know what, we should all be getting out of oil and gas and nobody else does, you you will lose out, right? Mm. So it's, it's not the case that investors have some sort of uh, inherent personal vested interest in the long run payoff of the stock they're invested in. Even though someone, someone will end up paying the consequence, it doesn't mm. necessarily mean it's the people who are currently holding the stock. So it's a little bit more subtle, I think, than, than trying to get the price right. Mm-hmm. It's about trying to outperform in your pricing decisions in relation to other investors. So is there anything that, um, well, I guess I'm sure there is because I've, I've heard you lecture on this before, but but what could something like natural capital accounting do to try and change these dynamics? Maybe we should start with what is natural capital accounting for those who don't. So I always ask people to explain it as if they were explaining yeah. it to a 10-year-old, yeah. but maybe yeah. like an MBA class. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so if you think about the carbon problem Mm -hmm. you can identify as it were the source of the problem being one of market failure Mm -hmm. that carbon emissions historically have not been anybody's private economic problem Mm -hmm. now at some level as long as from a corporate point of view you can think of the problem as being one of pricing of carbon so if companies are not made accountable for the full cost of the carbon that they emit, mm-hmm. then they will carry on generating carbon at a level which is optimal for their own shareholders, but not optimal for society. Mm-hmm. Right? So reporting, accounting on, reporting on carbon emissions has the effect of raising awareness of this as an issue. So the more you're able to say, we, the whatever company, emit the following amount of carbon, if you were to put a price on this, this is the, the, the sort of the consequence mm-hmm. of society of that. At one level, that's not relevant to that company and reporting to its own shareholders because it's not paying the price of that. Mm-hmm. At another level, it's incredibly relevant for social policy. It becomes a social issue. Right? If people become more aware of the extent mm-hmm. to which the, the, this problem exists and of where, where the problem resides and what public policy and so on would need to happen to be able to resolve the problem, then you are likely to see direct economic consequences for the company. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? So mm-hmm. um, the fact that carbon is not adequately priced now doesn't mean that it w- that will always be the case. Mm-hmm. And the first step in getting towards a satisfactory kind of uh, economic regime in this respect is to disclose and to report and to quantify actually the, the price on the nature of the problem. Does that make sense? Yeah. And how... Far away is this from being something which 
because I know you're you're involved in some of the policy making around this or sort of policy advocacy around this. How far away is it from being something which, when I'm running a business in five years' time, I will be doing or thinking about? So the answer to that question varies quite a bit according to the type of natural resource mm-hmm. that, we're, that we're talking about. So in terms of carbon, we've made a lot, we, not personally, but we've made a lot of progress in terms of, uh, not just carbon, actually greenhouse gas emissions in general, of understanding, quantifying, reporting, requiring reporting of mm-hmm. um, the, of carbon, or indeed there being voluntary mechanisms whereby companies report on a standardised basis. So we actually have quite a lot of information that concerning the nature of the mm-hmm. problem for carbon. We have far less and far less standardisation for other areas like impact on soil or water uh, or deforestation. So other sort of really impact on ecosystems, oceans and so on. Other really important areas where there is serious and unprecedented rates of um, degradation of natural resource, we have far less well-developed standards. So carbon is is sort of leading the way, Mm -hmm. I would say. Is there a distinction to be made between kind of the sort of voluntary reporting that I've seen in annual reports where it says we use, we're carbon neutral now but we want to be carbon zero yes. in the future yes. and the sort of bringing into the financial accounts which is yes. slightly different and then the, I guess yes. the distinction between management accounting and then yes. what, what goes in the annual report. So there are various distinctions that are important here. The, the, the predominance of practice is voluntary, voluntary reporting. Even this is going to sound paradoxical, but even when it's mandatory, right? So <laughs> if, you, if you have, because if you have a mandatory requirement yeah. to report on something inherently vague, yeah, where there are no standards and there are no norms and there are no conventions, then in effect, you have a standard that requires something voluntary, mm-hmm. right? So um, most reporting, whether mandatory or not, is in a substance subjective and voluntary mm-hmm. currently. And what we're gradually seeing, and Carbon is the leading example of this. What we're gradually seeing is greater reporting that looks like normal financial accounting, right? So right. if you look at the data on, on carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions, that's in substance accounting data. It's quantified, it's standardised, it's historical, it's comparable, it's consistent, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, you tend not to have that in other areas of, right. of corporate reporting. So I think we're, we're, the direction of travel is towards, as it were, non-financial reporting looking more and more like financial reporting, right. looking more like accounting. And there's another, there's one yeah. more level, which is which is, if you're able to quantify greenhouse gas emissions, that's not the same thing as integrating with your financial accounts. What you also have to do is put a number on them, mm-hmm. <laughs> which expresses them in the same unit as the financial account. Then mm-hmm. you can put the whole thing together. When one does that, when you've put it all together, mm. are there any examples that you can um, tell us about which they have done this and then have seen a reaction from yeah. the marketplace, from competitors, There's almost from no examples where, where that end game has been reached. I right. think that's really quite striking. So there's a, there's a dramatic increase in what you would call sustainability reporting mm-hmm. or integrated reporting or non-financial reporting, right. whatever you want to call it. A really dramatic increase, but very little actually in the way of formally linking financial accounting, financial performance to this other domain. And what do you think it would take to kind of tip that over the edge? I think investor pressure actually is very important. So to come back to your earlier question about carbon bubbles Mm. and so on, the more you have corporate financial performance being disclosed and 
all the kinds of other metrics that look like you ought to be able to line them up with the financials, mm. but you can't yet. And a kind of overhanging sense of, we've got a problem here, and these stocks probably aren't priced correctly, we probably ought to do something about it. Eventually you get a, almost a sort of market-driven pressure, mm. I think, um, which we're starting to see. So I think I'd say we're in the early days of that process. You could argue, you know, if I was going to be so devil's advocate, mm. and, and we've had this discussion in mm. class, right, mm. what... Mm. Where does the what's the limits of the financial statements and, and what should they include and what should they not include? Yeah. Where do you then stop? And maybe do you yeah. see any other frontiers kind so, of So again, there's quite a subtle distinction. So the financial statements, the, the you know, the shareholders report, as it were, is a report to shareholders mm-hmm. on financial performance that affects shareholders. Yeah. Right? So it's unambiguously a report to investors. It's not some sort of wider stakeholder report. However, if you're an oil and gas company and collectively in your industry you have more reserves than it's safe to burn, um, at some point or another your investors are going to be worried about that, right? Mm. And so actually reporting on the future of the industry in a way that isn't directly related to the financial accounts is relevant to shareholders with respect to their understanding of your future financial performance. Mm. So whether you call that financial reporting or not is slightly by the way Um, and even for example even if you don't have a tight carbon tax regime currently you might have in the future and the more you are exposed to the risk of that the more relevant it becomes to report to your shareholders things that don't currently affect them Mm. but might right so it's quite it's quite subtle I think that um, broader sustainability reporting actually is much more relevant to shareholders than most shareholders currently realise. So if I, um, you know, I finish my MBA and I... Well done. I'm not quite <laughs> there yet, but, you know, fingers crossed, touch wood, I finish my MBA and, or hypothetically, I, I go into one of these businesses and they say, right, we've heard about this thing called natural capital accounting. Can you go away and do it for me, please? Is that is that feasible right now? Is there a kind of a resource bank and a... A place where you can go and and yes, and I mean, do that, it. There are, in, in many ways, yes, there are standards out there, there are frameworks out there, there is guidance out there. There's no shortage of material. What there isn't is a single source uh, that has regulatory authority, right. right? So you can't go somewhere and say this is how it's done, mm-hmm. and this is what you'll be audited on. So there's a ton of information, but it's emergent, right? Right. And so that I think that's some one of the things you're involved in is trying to bring that mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. standard, mm-hmm. right? Um, which hopefully will be coming down the line. <laughs> uh, so, so soon, one hopes, because we don't have time. So mm-hmm. you know, the development of financial reporting standards really sort of kicked off with the Wall Street crash and because that's when investors started to realise they needed this sort of information. And over a long period of time, financial reporting has evolved and it's really in a very mature state now we don't have that same length of time to develop non-financial standards yeah and so we should all hope that they get developed quite quickly (laughs) absolutely thank you for listening to this episode of the future of business podcast Next time, I speak to an MBA student and an entrepreneur about the future of banks. Can they survive the incoming onslaught of fintech innovations? The Future of Business podcast is brought to you by Patrick, Michael, Ann, Brody, Paris, and Emily. Please subscribe in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.
Thank you for listening and goodbye. Thank you.